right, let's get our Bibles open to John chapter 17. John 17, our ushers are coming up and down the aisle. So great um, to uh, have the opportunity to greet one another. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand. The ushers can help you out with that. And uh, just as we're greeting one another, I just want to extend uh, just a, a warm welcome. If we could all try to uh, just show a, a greeting to some brothers who are here all the way from Nairobi, Kenya uh, this morning. So we've got uh, Gary and Pastor Peter and Pastor Luke. If you guys want to stand up so we can... Recognize you. So glad to have you here. So they were visiting with us earlier last week and uh, have a relationship with our parent church, Hope Bible Church, uh, Oakville. And uh, we had a great time of fellowship in the office uh, a little uh, a little while ago and so glad. I wasn't expecting to see them uh, here uh, this morning, but so glad to have you guys uh, here today. John chapter 17. Uh, this is Jesus' high priestly prayer. This is what he prays really moments before he is arrested and, and taken away. And when his disciples scatter and when Peter uh, uh, betrays, uh, or denies him uh, three times, this is really a crucial moment in Jesus' life and ministry. And it's at this time where we're able to eavesdrop on the Son of God praying to his Father. He begins in verses 1 to 5, praying for himself, praying that, that he would bring glory to God, that he would return to the glory that he had before the foundation of the world. Then he moved from praying to himself to praying for his disciples, the 11 disciples that were there uh, with him. And now he's going to extend and, and pray for all believers who will uh, receive uh, the word uh, of uh, the gospel. It's interesting. He doesn't pray how we might pray for our church. He, we, we, we might pray that you know, our church might grow numerically or that, that financially we would meet a budget or we might pray for certain programs or the more spiritual among us might pray that there would be a manifestation of miracles and the, and the work of the Spirit. But Jesus doesn't pray for any of those things, any of those practical or pragmatic things or even any of those supernatural things. He Praise. He looks at his 11 disciples and he looks forward into the future of everyone who will believe in the gospel and he prays that they would be one. He prays that they would be one. No matter how large an individual church may get, no matter how many people may come to follow, no matter how, how much influence or impact the church may be having in the world, Jesus prays that that church would be would be one. So John chapter 17, I'm going to read verses 20 through to 26. It says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me, and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. 
I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we've lifted up our voices uh, to you in praise and in worship. And Father, I pray that we now would hear your voice speaking through your living and active word. So Father, we pray that the same spirit that inspired John to write these things would indeed illuminate uh, this truth so that we could see it with our eyes, understand it with our minds, and, and internalize it into our very hearts. And so, uh, Father, we need much more than, than a religious lecture. We need much more than a, a sermon. Lord, we, we need a word from you, and so we invite God that you would speak in such a powerful way, Lord, that I, Lord, as I preach, that I would be yielding to your spirit, submitting to you, Lord, and that everyone who can hear my voice, Lord, would be doing the same, that you would be present here among us through the proclamation of your word. So we pray that you would help us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, this morning, as we come to the close of this amazing prayer that Jesus prays, we're really going to zero in on three facets that, that really show the heart of Jesus as it relates to us, his, uh, his followers. The, the first two are explicit requests, and then the third is sort of an implication that, that is related really to everything Jesus has been saying up until this point. But it's, it's quite clear right from the very beginning, if you look at verse 20 and 21, he says, I do not ask for these only, not just the 11 disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may be one. This is the first thing that's on Jesus' heart as it relates to us, those who will believe in the message from the apostles. He prays for our unity on earth. He prays for our unity on earth. If you're taking notes today, you can jot that down. The, the, the unity, notice that it's rooted in the receiving of the word. The, the, the prayer in verse 20 says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe. And how will they believe? They will believe in me through their word. The word of the 11 apostles who are there. It is through their word that, that more people will believe. It is through their word that was spoken that got the church started. It's their word that is written, that's in our hands right now. And if you are a believer in Jesus, you believe through the word. And what, what Jesus said here came true in Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit came and people were speaking in different languages and Peter stood up. It's the first day of church ever. And Peter preaches the first Christian message and the people respond. It says, those who received his word were baptized and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. Jesus says in verse 20 here, I do not ask for these only, but also those who will believe in me through their word. It happened there in Acts chapter 2. They went from being 11 to about 120, and now 3,000 were added. Why? Now, there were miracles on that day, but they didn't believe because of the miracles. They believed because of the message. There were signs, but they didn't believe because of the signs. They believed because of the sermon. The miracles always create the context for the purpose of the message. The sign is always there for the sermon. It's not the miracle that saves. It's the word that saves. Jesus makes that very, very clear. 
when he prays for us, what, what unites us is that we have received the apostolic word revealed in, in Scripture. Jesus asked that they may be one. He said this earlier when he was talking about being a good shepherd. In John chapter 10, verse 16, Jesus says, I have other sheep. Not just you, the 11. I have other sheep. I've got 3,000 that are coming in Acts 2. I've got all of the, the billions that have trusted in Jesus up until this point in human history. He says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. They will listen to my voice. So there will be, notice, one flock. He prayed that they would be one, and he predicted that. In John 10, that they will be one flock. But notice it says, they will listen to my voice. When Peter stood up in Acts chapter 2, it was not just the voice of Peter. It was the voice of Jesus. And you often hear it prayed. If you, if you belong to this church, you often hear the same thing prayed by the person up at the front when they get ready to preach. It's that, that, that it wouldn't just merely be the preacher's voice, but that the very voice of God would be speaking through his word. But notice how Jesus... In verse 21, he says that they may all be one. And then it says, just as. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Sometimes the most important words that we need to zero in on when we're studying our Bibles are the small little words. Words like just as. Words like so that. You see, Jesus uses that word just as to give us a picture of what our unity is supposed to look like. And then he uses the so that to show us the purpose of our unity. So three things quickly about unity. is, is He says, just as. Just as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. That, that, that the unity is supposed to be a picture or a reflection of the Trinity. He says, just as. I want them to be one, just as, Father, you and I are one, together with the Spirit. That we, our unity, is somehow supposed to be a reflection of the Trinity. Jesus says it twice. At the end of, of verse 22, he says that they may be one, even as we are one. Now, how is it that we are supposed to reflect the Trinity, obviously there's so much glory and complexity as it relates to the Trinity. But something we need to remember is that as we think about the Trinity, we believe that Jesus is God and that the Father is God and that the Spirit is God. But we also understand that Jesus is not the Father. The Father is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not uh, the Son. And so they are one and yet they are distinct persons, aren't they? And so when Jesus is praying for the church that they would be united, he's not aiming that there would just be some sort of monochrome version, a, a carbon copy, cookie cutter version of what a Christian should look like. No, that there is individuality within the unity just like there is within the Trinity. Now, we're not the same in essence. We aren't as one as the, as the Father, Son, and Spirit are one, but the Father, Son, and the Spirit have a common purpose and a mutual love, don't they? And that's something that we can have in common as followers of Jesus Christ, as the church. We can live with a common purpose and we can live with a mutual love for one another. So our unity is supposed to reflect uh, the Trinity. Secondly, it's, it's to be a revelation to the world. 
It's to be a revelation to the world. So we've, we've looked at the just as. Now look at the so that in verse 21. So that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus has, has only been praying for uh, his disciples and then the, those who will believe in his disciples. Lord, he said explicitly in verse 9, I'm not praying for the world. But really when he's praying for the disciples, when he's praying for us, he's also praying for the world. Because he prays that we would be one so that, that those who believe would be one so that the world may believe. So if we follow Jesus' prayer here, we've been looking at it where he prays for himself. And then he prays for his disciples. Then he prays for all believers. That's what we're studying right now. But then in verse 21 he says, so that the whole world would believe. There's something very, very important for us to understand here that there is a missional component to Christian unity that we often miss. The Puritan preacher Thomas Manton said, divisions in the church breed atheism in the world. He goes on in, in verse 22, he says, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them. Think about that. We've been talking a lot about the glory of, of God and how Jesus prays that he would glorify the Father and that he would receive the glory that he had from the foundation of the world. But here Jesus says that the glory has been given to us. Glory is the, is the exhibition of God's inherent excellencies. It's, it's, it's a revelation. It's showing on the outside what is so often hidden about who God is. The glory of God is, is the presence of God revealed. And Jesus says that the glory, that it's now our privilege and responsibility to show the presence of God in the way that we are united. There's a missional component. It's a revelation to the world. Some of us are proactive in reaching the world. We talked last week about we've got to get our boat into the water, but make sure there isn't water in the boat. But listen, we're not supposed to be going solo. We're not supposed to be lone ranger evangelists who are just out doing our own things without being connected to the body. The New Testament metaphor for Christian unity is a, a physical human body, right? You've got stomach, but the stomach is not the same as the hand and, and, and the eyes. And we're all different, but we all play a role. But we're all one, one body. And when you look at a human body, it's, it's, it's beautiful in the way that it is designed and the complexity and the, and, and the symmetry and, how, and the interconnectedness. But when some of us go out on our own and think, I'm going to live the Christian life by myself and I'm going to go be a witness and I'm not going to stay connected to the church. Listen, what we're doing is like we're taking one body part in isolation. Which is, which is not as attractive as body part in the context of the body. You could think that someone has beautiful eyes, but, but that doesn't mean that you want to just look at one individual eye. Eyes in the context of a face and a nose is quite beautiful. But one eye is not. Just sitting there, just one random body part. Listen. What we need is less Christians' body parts living 
in formaldehyde and more Christian body parts living in fellowship. Living body parts are connected to the rest of the body. And if we are going to be effective in reaching the world, we must make sure that we are, yes, we're reaching out, but we are at the same time reaching in and being involved in the local, the local church. So unity is a reflection of the Trinity. It's a revelation to the world. And then thirdly, we got to remember, it's rooted in the truth. It's rooted in the truth. You see, some people might be hearing this message and you're hearing me all wrong so far because you're thinking, yeah, you know, this is what we need. We need to, you, we need to get the church all united and stop downplaying doctrine and stop, stop focusing on theological disagreements or that sort of thing. We just need to figure out how we can all get together and, and, and stop focusing on the teaching or on the word. No, that's missing the whole point. The whole people that are supposed to be united are the people in verse 20 who have received the word. The whole basis of the unity is the word of God. And so there is no compromise on watering down what we believe. Because it's what we believe that unites us. Unity is to be rooted in the word. Well then maybe, maybe, maybe what you're saying, Ted, is that okay, so if we still believe what we want to believe, but we shouldn't be judging people about how they live or telling people that they should live to this certain standard of ethics or morality. We just need to forget about all, not no. Remember, think about the context. Jesus prayed in, in, in verse 17, sanctify them in the truth. What does sanctify mean? Is it make them holy? We are united in our common quest to live holy lives by the power of the Holy Spirit. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And so we don't compromise on our beliefs. We don't compromise on behavior. We rally around these things together. It's not about finding the lowest common denominator of what's the bare minimum you need to believe in order to be considered a Christian. That's not what we're going after here. It's got to be rooted in the truth. Look at verse 23 with me. He says, I and them and you and me that they may be that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me. There's the world again. And love me even as you, and love them, even as you loved me. Perfectly one. Jesus prays that his, that his church would be perfectly one. So i got to ask a question. Do you think that the Father answered Jesus' prayer? He asked that, he, that the church would be perfectly one. Now, is this something that, you know, Jesus thought he'd just kind of like throw in at the end, you know, I hope this works out, you know, not my will but yours be done, you know. We only, there's only one prayer we know that wasn't answered. That's when Jesus asked that the cup would be taken from him. But loved ones, the Father answered this prayer. The, the church is one. We may not experience it. We may not be living like it. But that doesn't change the reality that we are one. I was really helped by, by uh, Kent Hughes when he was talking about this passage. He, he, he related it to marriage. That if you have made a covenant promise 
for better, for worse, sickness and health, rich or poor, if you have promised to love someone till death do you part, the Bible tells us a man shall leave his father and mother and, be, and, and, and become one with his wife. They, 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 they shall become one flesh. If you've made that promise, you are one with your spouse. If you're not talking with each other, that doesn't make you any less one. You're still one. You've still made that promise. God still recognizes that, and you still need to recognize that too. Now, there are times in which we feel like we're one. There are times in which we don't. But that doesn't change the fact that we are. And so, as believers in Jesus Christ, whether it's a small group or a local church or the global church, we may not always feel like one. We might not always act like one. We may not always be on speaking terms with one another. But that doesn't change the fact that we are one. That's why it's so important for us to understand in Ephesians chapter, uh, chapter 4, verse, uh, verse 3, talking about, how to be united. The Apostle Paul says, with all humility and gentleness and with patience, bearing with one another in love. This is how, how unity happens by doing these things. But notice what it says. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. It's not eager to manufacture the unity. It's maintain the We're already one. When you start to get intentional, husbands, and loving your wife and pursuing your wife, you're not manufacturing your oneness. You're just maintaining it. You're celebrating it. You're enjoying it. And when we as Christians take steps towards one another in unity, doing the one another's of Scripture, Galatians 6.2, bearing one another's burdens, Romans 15.14, instructing one another, James, James 5.16, confessing your sins to one another, Ephesians 5.21, submitting to one another, 1 Thessalonians 4.18, encouraging one another, Hebrews 10.24, stirring one another up to love and good deeds, that when we are doing those one another's, we are maintaining a unity that is already there because the Father has answered Jesus' prayer. I did not intend to rhyme that sentence. Jesus prays for our unity on earth. This is why at our church, when, when someone wants to become a member of our church, we have them sign what we call a, a church family member commitment. And there's a number of commitments. This is number eight, which says, Z8F8, that's someone's child that needs to get picked up, but which says, church family member commitment number eight. To love the diverse body of believers at hope, eagerly pursuing and protecting the church's unity, diversity, and purity. Pursuing and protecting the unity that already exists. That's our starting point. We don't start like we're divided and try to get united. No, we start and recognize that we are already one. I was thankful for the way that Christopher Ash. Uh, described church unity. He described it like spokes on a wheel. And so you have a hub in the middle of a wheel and that would, that would represent God and, and then the edge of the wheel would represent uh, the, 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 the church and everything within that wheel. That's all of us. Now we could be far apart from one another and still be in the wheel. We're still one. But if we move towards the center... If we move towards the Lord, then we will be united 
with one another. See, listen, if we focus on unity, we're just going to be jumping from spoke to spoke. But if we focus on the Lord, if we focus on what it is that unites us, as we get closer to God, we will indeed get closer to one another. And so when Jesus is praying that we may be one, He's not just praying that Jesus would somehow be over here and he prays that all of the Christians would be one. No, he's saying, I want them to be one because I want all of them to be close to me. Which leads to what he says in verse 25. He says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am. Jesus wants his believers to be united because he wants his believers to be with him. But he says that they would be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. So he prays for our unity on earth and then he prays for his glory in heaven. He prays for his glory in heaven. He prays that all those who believe in him would one day stand and see his glory. He says in verse in. In, in verse 24, those whom you have given me. He said that back in verse 6, that it was the Father who gave the Son, those who chose to uh, believe in him. He wants them to be with him. Jesus came to earth to be with us so that we could go to heaven to be with him. And he wants us to see his glory. Again, he wants to put on display. He wants to exhibit his eternal excellencies and he wants his followers to be with him so that they can see that he wants us to see his glory in order to make this possible he went to the place where all of us deserve to go he went to the cross all of us deserve to go to the cross because of thoughts that we've thought, because of words that we've said, because of actions that we've done. Not only that, the good thoughts that we didn't do, the good words that we should have said, and the good deeds that we neglected to do. Because all have sinned and fallen short, fallen short of the glory of God. We deserve to go to the cross, but Jesus went to the place where all of us deserve to go. So that he could welcome us to the place where he alone deserves to go. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. Jesus is the only one worthy of the glory of God. And he wants us to be there with him. Even though we fall short. Even though we have sinned. Even though we have rebelled. Jesus has made a way. I love what it says in Hebrews 2 verse 10. It says, it says, for it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist, notice this, in bringing many sons to glory. That's the aim. That we would get to glory. That we would see his glory. But how did it happen? Should make the founder of their salvation, that's Jesus, perfect through suffering. Now that doesn't mean that Jesus wasn't perfect. Jesus was sinless. He was holy. But perfect through suffering simply means that he completed the mission that he came for. His suffering on the cross to bear the punishment for our sin completed or perfected the work that needed to be done so that we could go and be brought to 
glory. Jesus wants us to see his glory. He wants us to be with him. That's the whole reason why he came. And so can we be assured? Can we be assured that we will, in fact, get there? I love how Warren Wearsby summed it up. He said this, the, the prayer has been prayed, the promise has been made, and the price has been paid. Warren Wearsby rhymes on purpose. I do it by accident. The prayer has been prayed. That's John 17. The promise has been made. That's John 17. And the price has been paid. That's when Jesus says it is finished. He paid the price. He went to the place we deserve to go so that we could go to the place where only he deserves to go. I love the old psalm that says, when I stand in glory, I shall see his face and there I'll serve my king forever in that holy place. We do not deserve to stand in glory. We do not deserve to kneel in glory. We do not deserve to lick the floor and glory. We do not deserve, in, we do not belong in a holy place. We belong in a place called hell. But Jesus made a way. He came to be with us so that we could go with him. He wants us to see his glory in heaven. Now keep reading with me in verse 25 and verse 26. He says, O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known. Make note of this, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. This isn't a blatant request, but notice Jesus' concern here that the love with which the Father loves Jesus would be inside of us. That very close to the heart of Jesus, in these tender last moments, as he's praying before his Father, right before his arrest, he prays that the love of the Father would be in us. So make note of this thirdly. As Jesus prays for our unity on earth and his glory in heaven, his desire is for his love to be in our hearts. His love to be in our hearts. Now what I want us to do is I want us to pay very careful attention and I want to re read some of these verses in reverse order. So in verse 26, he prayed, or he prayed that the love with which you have loved me would be in them. So he wants the love that the Father has for the Son to be in us. Then look back at verse 24 where he says to see my glory that you have given me because you have loved me before the foundation of the world. And then look back at verse 23. He says that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you loved me. How has the Father loved the Son? In verse 24, it says that he has loved the Son before the foundation of the world. So let's all do our best with our tiny little finite brain to try to imagine 
nothing but God. Just the triune living God and all of his beauty and all of his holiness. Nothing has been created. There's no planet, there's no stars, there's no sun. There's just God. Because that is the kind of love that Jesus is getting at. The love before the foundation of the world. Now this is really important. It's important that our unity is rooted in truth because we can't have unity without believing in the Trinity. That's part of the word that we have to believe, that we have to receive. Listen, if you believe in a God that is not three in one, if you believe in a God that is not triune, then you can't believe that he has been a loving God for all of eternity because there was no one to love. That you have to have some sort of a concept of a, of a lonely God who created the world in order to have someone to love. That's not what Christians believe. Christians believe that before the foundation of the world, there was Father, Son, and Spirit. And that they were living in mutual love for one another in all of eternity past. And it was a love that was so pure and so powerful and so abundant that it was overflowing. And it was not out of a sense of neediness that God created the earth, but a sense of which we've got to find a place to put all of this love. And so the earth was created. Only belief in a triune God. Only those who believe in a triune God can clearly state and believe and assert that God has been eternally loving. The grace of God came later because there's no one to show grace to. The mercy of God came later. The forgiveness of God came later. Even the wrath of God came later because there was nothing created to have wrath for or to show mercy to or to show forgiveness for. But there was always love. Now think about this. In verse 24, Jesus says that they would, that they would experience the love because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Think about how the Father loved the Son before the foundation of the world. There's no earth. There's no garden. There's no Adam. There's no Eve. There's no serpent. There's no curse. There's no sin. There's just perfect, uninterrupted, Nothing to overcome, nothing to forgive, nothing to deal with. Just perfect, overflowing, abundant love between the Father and the Son. Do you see what I'm saying? Now how does Jesus want the Father to love us? He wants us to love and to be loved the way the Father has loved the Son before the foundation of the world. No sin and no curse, no brokenness, no forgiveness, no mercy. See, there was a time in eternity past where forgiveness was not necessary. And Jesus is looking forward to a time in eternity in the future where forgiveness is not necessary. You see, Jesus came, and he came to deal with the, the penalty of sin on the cross and the, the power of sin in sending the Spirit. But there will be a day where there will no longer be the presence of sin. That we will, in fact, stand in glory. 
that Jesus wants his Father to relate to you as though you never sinned. As though it never happened. The, it says all over, all over God's word that he's, he's separated our sins from as far as the east is from the west. He's cast our sins behind his back. This is the heart. When you get to the end of Jesus' prayer, this is what he's ultimately going after. That they, the love with which you have loved me may be in them. A love that doesn't have to overcome anything. A love that doesn't have to tolerate anything. A love that doesn't have to bear up under anything. A love that doesn't have to forgive. That doesn't have to show mercy. That doesn't have to show grace. Just love. That is the fullness of what Christ is going to accomplish for us on the cross. But the other mind-blowing thing, loved ones, is that Jesus does not simply say that he wants this to be something that we will experience in the future. Read carefully how verse 26 ends. That the love with which you have loved me may be in them. That God wants us to experience it now. Now listen, don't mishear me. I'm not saying that Christians no longer sin. I'm not saying that Christians no longer need to ask for forgiveness. This is all the more reason to pursue holiness. This is all the more reason to confess our sin, to get it out of the way so that we could experience this love inside of us, an overflowing, abundant, eternally glorious love that has existed before the foundation of the world. Jesus' prayer ultimately is that we would be one but that the, the way to get one is for us to understand that God does not want to relate to us as sinners, but he wants to relate to us as sons and daughters. And when we allow that tidal wave of the love of God, the infinite love of God, to wash on the shores of our lives, how can we not then overflow in love towards our brothers and sisters who have been loved in the same way? Loved ones, this is what Jesus, this is his heart for us, that we would be one, that we would see his glory, and that we would know the love of the Father for us. There is the, the, the John 3.16 love is, is mind-blowing, isn't it? That for God so loved the world, even though the world is sinful, that he gave his only son. But the whole point of the John 3.16 love was so that he could give the John 17.13 love. The whole point of why he gave his son is so that he could love us the way that he loves his son. That is his heart for you. That is his heart for us. And how can we not have our hearts transformed when we really wrestle with what that means? This is Christ's heart for us. Let's pray to him now. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you by your Spirit. And we come in the name of your Son. And we ask, Lord, we are, we are indeed, we're finite creatures, we're limited in our understanding. But Lord, I pray that we would truly understand what it means for us to be loved with the same love with which you love your son. 
God, I pray that our hearts would be full. I pray that our lives would be holy. I pray that our unity would be true, God. And God, as we stand together and sing in response to this marvelous truth, Lord, we look forward to that day where we will stand in glory, in your presence, in the place where we do not deserve. Experiencing love that we could never earn, but was all made possible through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. God, we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name.